Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zaylot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. What's going on with the Supreme Court? In its June 15th decision in Bostock et al., the court determined that employers cannot unjustly discriminate against an employee based on sexual orientation or gender identity. But what does this mean? Our guest today, Eric Niffen, a religious liberty attorney with the firm Lewis Rocha Rothgerber Christie, responds to these questions and offers insights into the Supreme Court's decision. We'll discuss why a majority of justices decided as they did, the critiques of the dissenting justices, and implications of the decision for religious liberty in general and for Catholic employers in particular. Before we begin, please note that Eric's comments in this interview are for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice. This information is not intended to create, and listening to this interview does not constitute, an attorney-client relationship. Eric Niffen, with this disclaimer in mind, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Joe. Good to be with you. And uh, as I said a bit earlier off air, I really want to thank you for doing this interview because I, I have little to no experience in terms of law. So uh, this should be a, a very much an educational experience for me. So again, thank you for joining us today. Well, you're welcome. So I asked this question of every new guest on our podcast. I was wondering if you could please tell our listeners a bit about your background, specifically your education and work experience leading up to your present position. Sure. Um, I grew up in Wheaton, Illinois. I grew up an evangelical Christian. I went to Wheaton College and studied philosophy. I did a master's in theology around Boston, and then I went to Notre Dame for law school. I entered the Catholic Church after I left law school. I clerked with a federal judge and then moved to Washington, D.C., where I worked for the Department of Justice in the Civil Rights Division. And after that, I went to the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. And that really um, shaped my, my present work. Um, I met my beautiful wife, Bonnie, in D.C. in 2003, and we've been married for 15 years and have eight children. Congratulations. Thank you. Excellent. There's a lot of stuff I'd like to talk to you just in that introduction, but in the interest of time, we won't. But So what's, what's, your, <laughs> what's your current position at, and I love just saying this, what's your current position at Lewis, Roca, Roth, Gerber, Christie, and what's the focus of your work? Sure. Um, I'm a partner in our religious institutions practice group. Um, we've got a great practice. Um, we serve nationwide dioceses, religious schools, and other apostolates. Um, our practice group alone is active in at least 34 states um, all across the country. Yeah. And I, I looked um, I looked the law firm up online as I was preparing for this interview, and it's a lot bigger than I expected it to be. Yeah, we're a, we're a big law firm. We have about 200 attorneys. Um, but I spend the vast majority of my time in my little corner here serving religious institutions. So I specialize in civil rights work, um, but I also do a lot of employment work and a lot of other things across the board. How many other attorneys, give or take, at the firm are involved in religious liberty issues? Um, there's probably um, six or eight that spend a good deal of time. Uh, working with religious organizations um, on, a, on a wide range of things, whether it's bankruptcies, uh, sexual abuse claims, um, uh, tax issues. So there's there's a lot of different sorts of things out there. Um, I spend, I, I'm, I'm the one who spends most of his time working on these sort of religious liberty type issues. Right. Yeah. I bet it's interesting work. 
It is. I love it. I, I'm sure it is. All right. So let's get into the meat and potatoes of today. So what exactly did the Supreme Court rule in the Bostock case? And how did its decision change civil rights laws in the U.S.? Well, this was the Bostock cases itself, three cases that were consolidated because they asked basically the same questions. You had two plaintiffs um, who were homosexuals, and then you had one plaintiff who uh, was transgender. And each of them brought similar claims in federal court saying, I was fired from my job because of my sexual orientation or gender identity. And um, the legal claim is that I have, I, I can fight that um, under Title VII. Now, Title VII is a 1964 law passed by Congress um, that says it's illegal to discriminate on the basis of race, national origin, religion, and sex. And so what these plaintiffs were saying is that what happened to me constitutes discrimination on the basis of sex. And so that's really the issue that was before the court is, right. does discrimination on these basic, does it count as, is it actionable under the part of the statute says you can't discriminate on the basis of sex? Okay. All right. So did the court, what did the, what did the Supreme Court decide in this case? Just very quickly, just so to get that, to get that out. Um, so the holding of the decision is that the 1964 law, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex, does prohibit employers from discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity because discriminating on those basis is irreducibly at some level, discrimination on the basis of sex. All right, we're going to get into into the, some of the reasons why, but um, before that, can you tell me how significant is this decision in terms of redefining law or or even making law? Well, first of all, it's significant because it expands Title VII, and so no Title VII is now going to cover a lot more plaintiffs. Um, but it's also an important decision on how to interpret statutes. And that's really what this case is about. It's not a referendum on what federal law should cover, but it's what, how, how do we figure out what the words in the statute means? So the, the facts here are really quite powerful. So from 1964 to 2017, every federal appellate court to examine this issue said that Title VII did not cover sexual orientation or gender identity. Ten courts, 30 judges unanimously, excuse me, unanimously came to the same conclusion. Furthermore, over these 55 years, there have been dozens of attempts to amend the law through Congress, and every single time Congress said no. And so, and then just sort of at a common sense level, there's um, agreement across the board. Nobody thinks that Congress in 1964 actually wanted to or thought they had passed a law that covered this. Right. And so all of that to say that the Supreme Court's decision says that none of that matters. And so a court decision that is uh, confidently interpreting the words of a law in the face of all this other evidence is itself a significant decision about how the Supreme Court is going to interpret and determine the meaning of statutes. Yeah. So the big question, and I've heard different interpretations of this. So the, the big question is, so in, in 1964, discrimination on the basis of sex referred to male, female, right? Mm -hmm. Biological sex. Did the court in Bostock actually redefine the word sex to include sexual orientation or gender identity? It did not. Um, okay. Can you explain so, that? Sure. 
So the court said, for purposes of our discussion, we will presume uh, that when Congress passed this law, it intended sex to mean biological sex. And in different opinions and different briefs, people are quoting different dictionaries of the time. And, the, and so Justice Gorsuch's opinion says, we're going to, you know, there are some other arguments, but we're going to accept that. So for purposes of our discussion, we will take that meaning and use that meaning. And so what the decision did is it did not redefine what the word sex means, but it said that discriminating on these other bases, when you do that, you invariably, um, you necessarily are making distinctions on the basis of sex. And therefore, even though the word sex itself doesn't change, discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation is a species of discriminating on the basis of sex. All right. I, I got to be honest with you. I've, I've read, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a lawyer. Um, I don't claim to be the most intelligent person in the world, but I read through Justice Gorsuch's majority opinion more than once. And I don't get it. I just don't understand the rationale for his argument. Can you explain in easy to understand terms? Can you, for me, really, can you under, understand the rationale of the Gorsuch or the majority opinion? And specifically, what does this but for language mean? So but for, this is one of the things that you become used to as a lawyer. That doesn't really make a lot of sense um, elsewhere. <laughs> it, it, it is a pretty common sense idea. Uh, it means because of, on account of. Um, but I think it's important to realize that to say that something is a but-for cause of something doesn't mean it's the only cause or even the primary cause. You know, so, for example, if you had a car accident. So I had a car accident a couple of years ago. And so well, what were the, the but-for causes? Well, if that lady didn't turn into me, turn into my lane, I would not have gotten the accident. But it's also true that if I had not gone to pick up my daughter from practice, I wouldn't have gotten the accident. If my daughter's swim practice would have gotten canceled. Um, if I would have driven another route. So all those are but for causes. So but for my daughter having this practice, I wouldn't have gotten into this accident. And so that is to say that when you say that something is a but for cause, you're saying that it is um, part of the puzzle without which it could not have happened. But it's not to say that it's the most important part of it. It's just to say that you couldn't have you couldn't have gotten this result without that factor. Okay. So how does this apply to the, the majority decision in Bostock, what, what, what was the but for that they argued? Well, there's a lot of different arguments and um, both the court's opinion and the uh, dissenting opinions introduce a lot of hypotheticals. And so there's a lot of sort of going through different scenarios. But I, I think one of the ones that is perhaps the clearest is Justice Gorsuch says, okay, let's say you've got an employee at a holiday party. Right. And that employee introduces the employee's spouse. If that spouse is a female, then whether or not the employer has a problem with that, the employer that is against um, homosexual employees, the employer's reaction to that will depend on the sex of the employee. And so it is to say that male employees are allowed to be attracted to and marry women, but female employees are not. So it's, it's, a, it's not an obvious way to think of it. Um, it's a rather sort of indirect way to, to understand what's happening there. But that was the, the way that, that Gorsuch uh, chose to phrase what happens when um, someone is uh, treated differently because of their sexual orientation. Hmm. All right. So 
little bit of a follow-up question here, and, I, and I'm, I'm taking this from some of the critiques that others have made. So let's apply this decision to, say, a public decency law concerning bathing suits. All right. Mm-hmm. So public decency laws, um, I, I assume they require women to cover their breasts in public, say you're at the beach, but not necessarily, or not men. So it could one interpret this you know, the, 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 this requirement to now be a violation of civil rights laws. In other words, could a bi or, and could a biological woman who claims to be a man now wear only a bottom and say that forcing me to wear a top is discriminating against me based on sex? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's right. I think there's a strong argument that it does. I think particularly when you take Gorsuch's opinion, which, goes to such lengths to bracket common sense and to bracket sort of the <laughs> real world. So it, it's, it is, but because, you know, the common sense, and you see that a lot in Justice Alito's and in Justice Kavanaugh's dissents, which have a much more sort of common sense, uh, sort of a G.K. Chesterton, sort of an all come on sense about it. Like we know what happened. And in Gorsuch's artificial world in which he's taking these words and Analytically looking at their, their meaning is 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 um, is apart from the world that we live in our day to day lives, um, and so Justice Gorsuch, having done that and having redefined this string of words, means that whenever this string of words shows up in a policy or it shows up in a law, then it's going to have the same meaning. And so, of course, when um, you know, you could say that. You know, if someone gets arrested, you know, a, a male gets in, arrested for entering the, you know, the changing rooms of a department store, department stores rather open again, um, you'd say, well, but for my sex, I would not have been arrested for this. You know, I, if I was a female entering the, cha- the female changing rooms, no one would have a problem with it. So therefore, I'm being discriminated against on the basis of my sex. Now, our, our gut reaction is, well, yes, but... That's not what the law is trying to get at. Right. Um, but Gorsuch, his analysis tells us it doesn't matter what people were trying to get at. What only matters is the word they use. And so and I think some of these hypotheticals help show that when you bracket common sense, when you bracket what we can all sort of understand was going on in the minds of people in Congress in 1964 and and beyond that, what an ordinary person would have understood those words to mean, um, if, if an ordinary person picked up the newspaper and read what it was that Congress had passed, um, when you bracket common sense like that, you end up in some pretty strange places. Yeah, speaking of strange, how about, how about this one? And again, I'm, I'm borrowing this from someone else. So, so advocates will claim that gender is fluid. You know, it's ever-changing. I can be male today, I can be female tomorrow, or, you know, whatever I want. There's also over, I don't even know what the, the final the list is right now, but there's over 100 genders that people can identify as. So I guess the question becomes, how does, how does the Bostock decision apply to, to so-called gender fluidity and the fact that there are 100 plus genders? How, how are employers supposed to navigate that water? It, it's not clear um, because you know, even the term but for sex and, and some of the hypotheticals too do... Um, presuppose this this binary relationship. So right. if, if it was someone of the opposite sex who did such and such, and it's not clear how to apply that to someone who does not simply identify with uh, 
of the opposite sex but identifies as being um, asexual, as being a, a, a gray sexual is, is, a, is a term that I learned for the first time a couple of weeks ago. And, and, and you go down the list. You know, I think we've all seen these articles that you, know, you can choose 100 different genders if you want right. to identify yourself on Facebook. Yep. Um, and so once you get outside of that, that binary um, world in which a lot of these laws and policies presume, you, know, you may not enter uh, you know, the changing room of the opposite sex. So what does that mean in a, in a gender fluid world? It's not clear. Uh, and and um, But that was one of the things that Gorsuch said at the end of his opinion. He says, look, I am not legislating defense. I am not responsible for the consequences that follow from this. I'm just telling you what the law says. And so it, that's, that's the, the rhetoric of the majority opinion is to, to um, trumpet its own modesty and to say what it was that it was not doing. And that's why Gorsuch was um, uh, able to, on his terms, to disclaim responsibility for what happens next. Right. And I'm, I'm wondering if the same thing is going to happen that um, Justice Thomas has been talking about in terms of abortion. He said, listen, I mean, the court created this supposed right to abortion in 1973. And ever since then, we've been trying to figure it out. And we've just created more problems for ourselves than, than we know what to do with. And I'm wondering if this decision is going to create the same dynamic within the court, because now like everything is, is, is thrown open and the court is going to be adjudicating this forever and a day. That's a really good point, Joe. And that's, um, you know, we're, we're going to have to see whether this decision really is a landmark decision in the way that um, the Supreme Court is going to interpret statutes moving forward and um, lower courts uh, following in the Supreme Court's wake, or whether this is going to be a one-off. Because you're right. If we take this approach at face value, it means that Congress is not going to do a lot of what it often does is say, look, uh, particularly in the abortion context. Look, there's a strong reliance interest here. Look, our society has sort of moved on in this sort of way. Uh, according to Gorsuch, this very sort of meager, sort of Spartan approach says none of that matters. The only thing that matters are the word. And if the court has gotten this wrong for decades, then that's the court's problem. But I'm going to fix it because we're just going to look at the words. And so that can be an unsettling, it, it, it can very well be an unsettling result in other contexts, just as it's unsettling here. And so that's going to be one thing that I need to be worried about a lot of other people as to whether the Supreme Court really is going to, going to um, hold fast this analytic approach uh, in other cases moving forward. Yeah. All right, so you, you've kind of touched on this already, but I'd like to come back to it. So, so numerous commentators have claimed that in Bostock, uh, Justice Gorsuch, as well as Justice Roberts and, and the four left-leaning justices, they actually weren't interpreting the law, but they were actually making it. They were legislating. And that's, in fact, uh, Justice Alito, the first line of Justice Alito's dissent said, this is legislation. Mm-hmm. So in doing so, now let's go back to, to Gorsuch here. In doing so, um, these commentators will argue that, that Gorsuch is actually rejecting the judicial philosophy that got him on the high court in the first place. Is this the case? Um, it, it, it's hard to say. Um, I, I don't want to cast aspersion on Justice Gorsuch's motives. Um, he is a textualist, and uh, he wrote this opinion in that vein. Um, and so I am not willing to go where some others have said and, <laughs> and saying, 
he's abandoned us. He's done something he explicitly said he wasn't going to do. Um, you know, so I think we ought to be, you know, in charity, um, you know, particularly as Catholic, to say, look, if he says this is how he really understands it, then we ought to take that at face value. And, you know, even if we don't like it, um, let's deal with this method. And let's critique it on its own terms. Um, but let's not uh, cast dispersion on his motives. That's what I think we're going so looking into your legal crystal ball, do you think, or what do you think this decision means in terms of future cases? For Justice Gorsuch or, or otherwise? Uh, either or. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. I, I think it is really interesting to look at this decision. And, um, you know, we've talked about the religious liberty impact of this decision. Um, one of the things I've done is considered, well, what would happen if we really did take this approach and applied it to other parts of Title VII, specifically the parts of Title VII that talk about religious liberty? So there are uh, two different provisions, one that says that religious organizations get to choose employees on the basis of religion. And there's a second similar provision that basically says the same thing, it says it's specifically about religious schools. And those have been read rather narrowly, even though the word religion within Title VII is defined, and here I quote, to include all aspects of religious observance and practice as well as belief. Well, that's a very broad definition. It is broad. And we're the same. I would be very happy to go to Justice Gorsuch again and say, okay, now I'd like you to do Bostock on that phrase. I would like <laughs> you to go back and give that its full weight and let him say, look, if, if, if people don't like this, they can go back to Congress. Um, if this is what Congress thought was going to happen, that's really irrelevant because the words they put down here is that religious organizations can choose their employees on the basis of religion. And when you say religion, it means all aspects of observance, practice, and belief. And that's not the way courts have interpreted. Courts have said, well, you can, um, you know, for example, they've cabined uh, that to say that you can discriminate on the basis of religion, but you can't do that when that discrimination on the basis of religion could be understood as discrimination on the basis of sex as well. So they've cut it short. And I would like to see the court come back and give this text its full weight. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I think that's that's an argument that I would certainly be citing Bostock in making. Interesting. You, you may just get what you what you wish for, because I think I think the uh, the lawsuits are going to start coming, you know, quick and fast now. But, but anyway, let's yeah. let's we'll, we'll come back to the religious liberty um, angle in a little bit. But I'd like to stick with the court for for a few minutes here. Um, can you tell us what were Justice Alito's and Thomas's their their two uh, their dissent was together? What was what were their main points of dissent with the Bostock decision? I think there's a lot of overlap in between Justice Alito's and Justice Kavanaugh's. Um, uh, their okay. opinions. Um, Let's talk about them together. Then. That's fine. Well, I'll, I'll start with Alito. So he, he did say this is legislating from the bench. It's not what judges are supposed to do. But I think his real point is saying that what Gorsuch did is too artificial, that you're supposed to look at words in context. You're not supposed to be so artificial. And so again here, he says, um, you know, yes, the words matter. Yes, the texts matter. But one way you look to understand what the text means is by looking how the people reacted to it, how, how courts have reacted to it. And that's important. You know, I've thought about this. Uh, neither Justice Thomas, um, or excuse me, Justice Alito nor Kavanaugh make this point. But if you think about this in a biblical context, so the way that we interpret the Bible, 
So imagine if someone was to come along here 2,000 years after the fact and, and give a new, um, previously unheard of interpretation of a passage in the Bible. Well, one of the ways that you argue against that is you say, well, surely if that's what it really meant, then people would have read this beforehand. Right. That, and, and, and the idea that you are reading the Bible better than the church fathers, better than the church has read over its long history, um, that in itself is a very strong, practically conclusive argument against that argument. And so the, the context and the history of how something has been read is not something different from interpreting the text. It is part of, it is an important method of interpreting the text. And I think you see that in Alito in particular, saying you know, some of the things that I mentioned, going through the court decisions, looking at the different times that Congress tried to pass um, new laws, um, looking at the way the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has interpreted and applied the law, that you have so many data points indicating an understanding, even by people who wanted to um, have a law that protects um, sexual orientation, that there's almost unanimous agreement that this law this stream of words didn't do it. You also look to the states, and the, it's roughly half of the states that have um, amended their own um, employment discrimination statutes in order to add sexual orientation and gender identity. And they did so because they thought that's what was necessary in order to change what the law covered. Very interesting. I like the fact that you're a biblical scholar as well as a religious liberty lawyer. This is. <laughs> You have another career. So um, following up with that, Justice Alito offered a number of areas in his dissent where he uh, said this decision could have some really significant impacts. And you talked about some of them already. So bathroom use, female sports, um, shelters, particularly for the, I'm thinking about the one up in Anchorage, Alaska, the women's shelter, uh, mm -hmm. speech codes, things like this. Again, looking into your legal crystal ball, how do you think these issues will be resolved in light of Bostock moving forward? I think there's going to be strong arguments um, that, based on Justice Gorsuch's approach, that all these statutes have to be overturned. Uh, or, or I should say that they, sh they should be read to do something that... Uh, that no one ever thought they were going to do. And I think you take particularly Title IX, there's a really is a really important one because here's a law that was specifically designed in order to protect the opportunities for women in education. Yep. And to take that, that was clearly the purpose of the law. And then it really, uh, to, to, to take this interpretation unravels um, the, the work that um, Title IX was, uh, was meant to accomplish. And then what it has done a great job of in a lot of ways. I have five daughters. And um, I, I think one of the things that this uh, opinion and this change in the law is going to bring to the fore is something that's been simmering in the background for decades, and that is this tension between transgender activists and feminists. Yep, and, absolutely. And, and, you know, so you have someone like Martina Navratilova, um, a world champion tennis player who really broke a lot of ground and has done a lot in order to make opportunities available for women, for women to be seen as serious athletes on their own turn, and for her to speak up as someone who's been a progressive icon for a long time, and to say, hey, 
this is going in the wrong direction. All of a sudden, she's being thrown under the bus as someone who's standing in the way of progress. So here we have a real conflict, and it is not clear how this is going to work out. There, there's no sort of tea leaves in, in, um, that I see in our cultural conversations that show how this real tension is going to be resolved. Yeah, and, and I, as you were speaking, I was thinking uh, we may not have to wait too, too long, well, at least in, in legal terms, because there's a, a case that three, um, three, high school, three female high school athletes in Connecticut yes. have, have sued the, the Connecticut State Athletic Association, or whatever the name is, for allowing uh, biological men to compete in their sports and, you know, and, and win races and questions of, of um, you know, because these female athletes finished lower down in the in, in their races, they're losing out on college scholarships and all these other things. And so that case is actually moving forward. So the court just may have, uh, you know, Justice Gorsuch may have his opportunity to uh, to do what he may not want to do in the, in the relatively near future. One thing that apart from the law, um, our society, our civil rights movements in general, you know, move towards protecting the little person. That's that's sort of the, the narrative, the story of our civil rights laws. And when you get to something like this, you say, okay, well, who's being excluded? Who's being hurt? Who's a little person? Is it the transgender person that wants to um, participate according to how they understand themselves to be, how they're most comfortable? Or is it the women who are being now denied opportunities that were available to them just a few years ago? And so, again, you have a clash of narratives, and uh, it doesn't seem like both sides can have what they want. And um, so it's not clear what's going to happen. Yeah. Stay tuned. It's going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us, uh, what did Justice Kavanaugh argue in his dissent? So Kavanaugh was not as wide-ranging in his dissent. He really focused on um, uh, this more of what it is to be a textualist. And he said it's not about looking at the meaning of individual words. It's looking at the ordinary meaning of phrases. And so it's, um, I think it's something like what I studied in, in philosophy. One of the critiques of analytical philosophy is that, when you, which is really language-based, is when you, when you chop up sentences and arguments into words, um, when you pretend that that's the only thing that happened, you lose the course of the trees. And so right. it's something like, if you want to study a frog, you learn something by taking a frog and, and putting it in formaldehyde and then chopping it up into pieces and looking at its organs. But then you're not really looking at a frog anymore. And you're just looking at frog parts. And Justice Kavanaugh's opinion is like that too. He says, we need to be looking at the ordinary meaning of phrases. And when you chop up phrases into words and then you go to dictionaries and look at each individual word, and then you pick certain definitions, and then you take that, and then you stack them all together, and then you sort of say, okay, well, now here's what the meaning of a phrase is. And that's, that's, not what you, that's not what textualism is, and that's not the right way to understand what the meaning of laws is, because laws are not passed that way. They're passed, so we should be looking at the ordinary meaning of phrases, not at the separate different meanings of words. And I think that's, that's sort of a more of a common sense approach, as I mentioned. And I think Justice Kavanaugh is saying, look, if we look at the ordinary meaning of laws, we're not going to get into this situation that we are here, where you end up saying that the text means something that no one thought it meant. Um, and so, you know, no one really argues that anybody intended or thought they were passing the law 
that uh, protected sexual orientation. And then another point was made that even the term gender identity, even this theory, wasn't even developed in the 1960s. And so um, that clearly could not have been in the mind of, of Congress. Um, so Justice Gorsuch, uh, excuse me, Kavanaugh offers his uh, a different way to understand textualism. And so his is a critique of Justice Gorsuch's method, not the result, but the method. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember um, reflecting on, as you were speaking, I was thinking of uh, an interview that was done with uh, one of the lawyers who represented the funeral home. Uh, one of the three cases, a funeral home up in Michigan. I just can't remember the name of the, the case off the top of my head. But one of the points they made was that the owners of the funeral home were following the law as the law was written. And now the law, you know, the rug was pulled out from underneath them. So mm -hmm. they're brought up on something and now they're, they're quote unquote guilty of discrimination when, when the law, as they understood it, as everybody understood it, as, as you said previously, um, how the courts interpreted it and everything else. That's how they acted. And now the rug is pulled out from under them. And, you know, and it's like, how do you, you know, how do you have the rule of law if the law, if, if a court can just change the law? And it's, you know, it, it kind of, it makes you shake your head. It is hard, you know, for there to be undiscovered um, meetings of the law. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's, um, it, it makes it harder to navigate society. That's one of the important things uh, that law does, particularly in a business and a tax context, is it's supposed to create clear rules so that people know how to, know how to navigate things. You know, right. you know, if I do this, this is what's going to happen. And of course, the law can't clarify everything, but the law works hard to try to tell people what the rules are, and so people can engage in society and interact with each other, and they can understand um, and have some sort of predictability about it. And so, a decision like this, which says that a statute means something that nobody thought it meant, um, that is an unsettling thing in the law, apart from the consequences here. Right. This is a nice segue to my next question. So in a, in a prior interview that I heard you, um, heard you speaking about this case, you spoke about the moral import of Supreme Court decisions. What do you mean about, what do you, what do you mean by that? And, and how does this apply to the Bostock case? Sure. Um, I think the Bostock case is a good example of it because it's very clear, um, the, the, um, certainly Justice Gorsuch's opinion, goes to lengths to say here, I'm not weighing in on the moral part of this. I'm not legislating from the bench. I'm only telling you what this string of words means. So even though you have him doing that over and over and over again, um, the, the newspaper headline that comes out of a court like that is the Supreme Court says it's wrong to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. And you see that too. Um, there was uh, another Supreme Court case uh, in the last week about immigration. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was the subject matter, but the decision itself was about the Administrative Procedure Act and the rules that have to be followed when certain regulations um, are changed. Right. And so you have a, a rule about that, but the bottom line is, and you saw this in the USCCB's press release, is yay, this is good for immigrants. But the Supreme Court was just interpreting this very technical, very boring sort of a an issue. But the headline, again, is good for immigrants. Okay. And so similarly here, we have a legal decision that, as we've been talking about, talks about how you interpret statutes and what the job of the Supreme Court is. 
But the bottom line is, and I think this is a line in Gorsuch's opinion, and he attributes this to the law, but I think it comes through as sort of the, the moral the moral message of this case is, quote, an individual's homosexuality or transgender status is not relevant to employment decisions. And so regardless of what Justice Gorsuch goes to great lengths to say he is not doing, the, the cultural impact and the message of this case is um, it is improper to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. This, and, and similar to the Obergefell decision a couple of years ago, the message from the decision is it is okay. Uh, there is nothing morally wrong with same-sex marriage. And that's the cultural meaning of the decision, even though it's not what the decision says. Right. I was going to ask you about that because I've heard it when um, when I was teaching. You, you hear the line, it may be said explicitly or implicitly, well, if it's legal, it's ethical. You know, you hear that mm -hmm. in people in the business world. And I was going to ask you about Obergefell. I mean, with that decision, okay, well, marriage, you know, marriage, quote unquote, marriage between two people of the same sex is legal. Well, that must mean it's moral. I've mm -hmm. also heard people say the Roe decision. Uh, well, the court has said that abortion is legal, so then it must be moral, or at least my moral decision is taken away. Do you see the same thing? And I think you answered this question already, but you see the same thing with Bostock, people taking the decision and expanding it further than what it was, what was really intended. Of course they will. That is what happens. <laughs> it always happens with this. And so, you know, and I think that's one of the things that makes this decision really important for Catholic employers and for the church is that the, 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 the cultural meaning of this uh, decision will be taken by many people to say, you are on the wrong side of history. The Supreme Court has decided that people who discriminate the base of sexual orientation and gender identity are bad and they are against public policy. Another great lead into my next question. So, Eric, does the Bostock decision make it more difficult for employers to maintain their biblical understandings of human anthropology, sexuality, and marriage? And why or why not? So, yes and no. So, so culturally, this is an important milestone. Okay. But legally, and this is something, again, that Justice Gorsuch um, stressed toward the end of his opinion, is that this opinion itself does not change religious liberty laws. And so I think it moves sort of the cultural, that, first of all, it, it, it creates a, a legal cause of action that was not there before, or was not really there before. But I think also culturally, it, it's going to move judges and juries. Um, it's going to tend to move them more towards the fact that um, it is a bad thing to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity, and more broadly to make moral distinctions um, on those basis. Hmm. So, so was, there's, there's that, but it, again, doesn't change any of the constitutional or statutory protections for religious liberty. You know, I, I've shared a little bit why I think that the, the interpretive method of Bostock could be good for religious liberty. And there's other people who think that, that if, if you think of the Supreme Court as a political entity, and it sometimes feels that way, that perhaps there's a grand bargain going on and that the Supreme Court realizing that, you know, if we're going to increase um, uh, rights for sexual, um, rights of sexual orientation and gender identity, we are also um, accepting at some level that we're going to have to do more for conservative religious groups on the other side. And so they're, they're, 
going to be, under this theory, more generous with religious liberty, and perhaps we'll see some stronger decisions, including some in the very near future, that will help make a clearer space for religious employers in this new world. I, I want to go to that to, to the religious liberty discussion, um, but I, I just have one question. And it's in light of the Bostock decision, if that decision had been in place prior to the Masterpiece Cake decision, would Jack Phillips have been successful at the Supreme Court? Um, he would have been. And that's because the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision was actually very narrow. And so the Supreme Court avoided the big issues in the case. <laughs> <laughs> and it really said, well, the problem here is that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission was very mean-spirited and very anti-religious. And so one way to read that decision, I think a fair way to read it, is that we're not saying that it could not have, um, it, it might have been legal if Colorado had been nicer or more polite to Jack Phillips. But because it was particularly nasty in the way it talked about him, that's what... Uh, infringed on his rights because there's a right to be treated fairly. Right. So if Jack Phillips, and, and again, I'm, I'm asking you to, put, to look into the crystal ball. So if Jack Phillips or someone in the future doesn't argue on religious grounds, but just they have an opposition to the redefinition of marriage, is Bostock saying, you know, you're out of luck and you have to make that cake? Well, if there wasn't any religious aspect involved, then the public accommodations uh, law in color would clearly prohibit one thing. I, I don't think there's much of a, an argument there. It's really about whether or not there's um, that Jack Wilkerson in his shoes is entitled to, uh, on religious liberty grounds, an accommodation or exemption from that requirement. And that gets into the conflict. So what counts as a religious organization is it possible to have a for-profit religious um, organization? Are those sorts of questions? And so it's really more of a religious liberty question than it is that. But I think here, moving forward, I think the broader question is, you know, when the Supreme Court passed the Obergefell decision on same-sex marriage, there's a line in there that says, look, we understand that there are people of goodwill who for noble reasons uh, maintain moral beliefs about sexual morality. And, and, and we're not casting aspersion on them. And that was an important line. I think the Supreme Court, that was Justice Kennedy, wrote, trying to explain that uh, what, whatever discrimination the basis of um, sexual orientation is, whatever discrimination against same-sex marriage is, it's not the same thing as racism. And those two things should not be conflated. And I think that is going to continue to be tested. And the Supreme Court is going to be asked, did you mean that? Are you going to stand up and stay committed to this idea that there is room in society that we will continue to recognize that there are good and noble reasons that people have to sincerely believe that um, a sexual behavior is a, an important moral category? And um, on the one hand, there are a lot of efforts, and there have been, to conflate um, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation with racism. And so that is an ongoing test to see whether or not the uh, Supreme Court in particular is going to um, do what, um, to do to conservative religious organizations what we did to racists in, 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 um, in decades past. And so the big decision there was 
um, it was your way to Bob Jones University, which was actually a tax case, but it came to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, yeah, we made a decision as a country that public policy is strongly against people who discriminate on the basis of race. And um, because of that, you can lose your tax-exempt status if you discriminate on the basis. And there's a lot of people and, and public commentators, we saw this at the time of Bernadette, that have said that ought to be applied now to, to conservative religious groups. And the Supreme Court seemed to indicate no in the Obergefell decision, but that's going to be tested. Uh, crazy world we live in. So uh, you started answering this next question already, but let's see if we can go, go a little more into detail on it. So commentators, including yourself, I've heard you say this, have stated that Bostock is not a religious liberty case. Can you explain this? Sure. As I've said, Justice Gorsuch was interpreting the words in Title VII. And so the decision itself is simply a statutory interpretation decision. So that is not a religious liberty decision, but it is a decision with important religious liberty implications. Okay. All right. So let's get a little deeper then. How, if at all, is the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act affected by Bostock? So um, on its face, not at all. It remains in place. Um, so this is a law. It was passed in 1993 at a time when religious liberty was a nonpartisan, enormously popular issue. So this was a bill that was introduced in the House by Chuck Schumer, introduced in the Senate by Ted Kennedy, signed into law by Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton. Yep. And everybody thought this was a good idea. This was one of the, and, and, and President Clinton even made a joke about this. It's like, it's so fun to have something everybody can agree on. And now here we are these years later. And um, so while RIFRA remains in place, that law is, uh, continues to be pushed against and, and seen as an obstacle by um, gay rights activists. We saw this a few years ago. It really came to a head with the Indiana RIFRA when um, Vice President Pence was the governor of Indiana. And this was, and you know, from Pence's perspective, is this is just another law that's been passed. It was exactly the same as the one that was passed by Democrats uh, in 1993. How, how, how controversial could that really be? But the law was seen as an anti-gay measure. And so something that is just religious liberty was seen as anti-gay measure. And that's really an unfortunate thing that's happened. And I've seen it increasingly in my practice is that religious liberty is seen as a, a non, is seen as a very partisan issue. The U.S. Civil Rights Commission put out a report a few years ago that had that in quote marks and saying that you know, religious liberty should not be used as a front uh, to try to protect bigotry. Uh, and so that's a very sad and a very dangerous development in our law and in our culture. And so these laws remain in place. There are efforts. There is bills pending in Congress right now that would peel back RIFRA and have it not apply to any employment discrimination claims. Yes. So as of now, it's in place. And we, um, I think that's, that's a good news that I like to stress to people is that our nation has in its bones, in its backbone, a deep fundamental commitment to religious liberty um, that has uh, that has been it is an important part of our heritage and it remains today. And so those resources, those legal arguments, those protections are still there, even though um, we as Catholics are facing cultural headwinds like we haven't before. Yeah. 
Do you think uh, the Bostock decision is going to affect RIFRA laws on the state level differently than the than it may or may not on the federal level? Not unless those laws are changed. Okay. Um, you know, I, well, I, I should say one thing there about RIFRA, just the way RIFRA works is, you know, so for the plaintiff side, the, the person bringing a claim says, this substantially burdens my religious exercise, which is a pretty easy thing to claim. And then on the flip side, the government has to show, yes, okay, maybe we are, but we're doing this to advance an important government interest that cannot be advanced in any other way. And so even RIFRA itself can be defeated. So for example, in the, in the coronavirus context, mm-hmm. to say, yes, we are stopping you from having church services, but this is a global health pandemic, and there's no other way for us to accomplish this goal than by limiting um, uh, mass gatherings. So that's, a government, that's an argument the government has made, and it has won in many courts. And the only way the government loses is when it's being unfair in the way it's implying. But if the government is fair across the board, if it's um, saying no gatherings, no indoor gatherings uh, of more than you know, 50 for anybody, and that's going to be hard for a religious organization to win. And so as we move forward here, uh, one way that a government might win a record challenge in the case of sexual orientation is that, look, we have an important interest in protecting um, religious uh, sexual minorities. And so even though it's burdens really religious exercise, there's no other way for us to advance this public interest than to, um, you know, than to punish you for what you did this employee. It's possible that even if Ripper stays in place, that religious organizations could lose under strict scrutiny. Yeah. So, so what to, to what degree then should faith-based employers and organizations, particularly Catholic ones, because that's our, that's our audience primarily, to what degree should they be concerned with the religious liberty implications of this decision? They should be very um, concerned by it. You know, not all hope is lost, but um, this is something that uh, underlines the importance of work that has been a big part of my practice uh, for many years now. Um, I published um, a white paper with the Heritage Foundation at the end of 2015 on what religious organizations can do to protect religious exercise at a time even then when they amount to legal and cultural pressures against religious organizations. And, and I've done a lot of audits with, with dioceses, with Catholic charities, with um, Catholic colleges and schools. Um, to help them understand their religious liberty protections and understand what they have to do um, in their employment practices and the way that they engage with people in the documents that they have people sign and the way they explain themselves um, to um, people within their communities and to the broader public in order to make sure that those religious liberty protections are there when they need them. So the way I explain it is this is a lot like you know insurance. So, so flood insurance, yeah, it's expensive. Um, and you hope you never need it. But by the time you need it, if you don't have it, it's too late. And the same thing is true here. I get this as an attorney when someone calls and says, I need legal help with something. You get this a lot with the Beckett Fund. And then you have to start asking them questions. So, okay, well, I understand your difficult situation. Can you tell me what were the conversations you had with this employee? What were the documents you had them sign? Did they agree they had a religious position in your school? And a lot of times, like, I think they did, but um, I can't find the paper. <laughs> and and so it's experiences like that that drove me to this work that says if I can get in there ahead of time, if I can convince um, uh, schools and dioceses and, and Catholic charities to invest resources 
um, to convince them that it's good stewardship to do this sort of work up front, then they will be in a much better place. And that's to claim the ministerial exception and to claim protections under um, uh, under other religious liberty uh, protections, for example, some of the ones I mentioned in Title VII. Yeah. We've been working with the Catholic Benefits Association on some of these issues, and they say the exact same thing. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Eric, what practical challenges do you see um, religious organizations facing in the future as a result of Vostok? Um, so, I think there's going to be a lot of legal challenges. Um, there's a court, uh, there's a case before the Supreme Court next term, the Fulton case on yep. um, foster care. Uh, right here in Philadelphia. Yep. That's right. And so whether whether that is going to um, so that the broader issue there is under what terms um, can Catholic charities and religious organizations get government contracts? Um, so faith based agencies and their, um, their ability to maintain their own convictions and their own practices and um, provide public services um, or provide charitable services with public dollars. Um, and there, too, some of it is not even about public dollars, because some of these cases are simply about licensing. Uh, I was able to write um, an amicus brief for the USCCB in the Fulton case. And one of the things we argued there is that caring for foster children, caring for orphans and widows is something that's been a fundamental practice of the Catholic Church since the very beginning. If you go to the second century, it's hard to find a document that doesn't talk about that being a distinguishing mark of the early church. Right. And yet, we're told in the Third Circuit decision, which is now being appealed to the Supreme Court, um, that this is simply a public activity. And we argue in our brief, how can it be that something that has been a fundamental religious practice for 2,000 years becomes a secular public function as soon as it's surrounded by government regulations? So that, that's partly a battle in terms of what counts as a religious activity and who gets to participate in what terms. Um, can can the government dictate the terms under which the Catholic Church does its own activities? So that's going to be an important thing for Catholic schools, the way they employ teachers, um, the way, um, what happens when you get into sport, sports leagues. And, and, and it's not only locker rooms, it's not only bathrooms, but it's also the actual um, competition itself. And who gets to participate in those competitions and who gets to come as a male, who gets to come as a female. Um, there's going to be a wide variety of challenges. Um, and uh, unfortunately, that's just where in our society, a lot of our debates get played out is in, is in lawsuits. It's, it's better than sword fighting, um, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's not obviously the best way to resolve these things either. Yeah, we're, one of the issues that we're really worried about here, in fact, there's a hospital in California that's already facing this is, you know, how are Catholic hospitals going to defend themselves against demands for uh, interventions for, for gender dysphoria or, or what was formerly called gender identity disorder? So mm -hmm. you know, have, our hospital is going to be forced to provide these gender-affirming psychotherapies, the puberty blocking, the cross-sex hormones, the surgical procedures. You know, th this is a real um you know, this is a real issue and it's a real challenge. And it's something that a lot of Catholic healthcare professionals and systems are, are worried about. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So Eric, in light of Bostock, what practically speaking, we'll get down to the, to the, to the, you know, the nuts and bolts here. What practically speaking should religious employers and organizations be doing today? 
religious organizations need to think carefully about whether it is a challenge to their, um, their practices, whether it's a challenge to their employment benefits, whether it's uh, a challenge to the way they use their facilities, or whether to their employment practices, to the faith and conduct rules they have for their employees. How are they going to respond if a challenge comes? And are they ready to claim all the religious liberty protections that are there in the law? My experience is that generally they are not. And, and so it really is a decision. And it's hard. It's hard to dedicate resources to problems before they arise. It's even harder in the midst of a pandemic. I get that. But at the same time, these cultural um, storms are coming. And it's really important that um, Catholic organizations uh, schools and other um, apostolates and even chanceries themselves um, get leadership around a table and say, are we ready? And if we're not, how are we going to get ready? Um, that's been a big part of my practice. And it's really been an honor to sit, sit down at those tables and help ministries understand what it is that they need to fulfill their God-given mission and then to take practical steps in order to make sure they get their documents and policies in line so that they're ready. And this is important on a lot of different levels. I think it's important you know, so when you get to the point of a discipline or a termination, um, a lot of employment lawsuits, I think, are really at their heart about fairness. And when employees can be shown and when they can be really be convinced that, look, I understand we're in an unhappy situation, but I think we were fair in explaining to you what, what this organization is about and how that applied to your situation. And so although we're at a difficult place right now, I think I don't think we've treated you unfairly. And I don't think we've pulled out the rug from underneath you. And so having the right documents in place, having the right policy, the right conversations, even before you hire someone, is really important to preventing lawsuits from being brought in the first place. And then if they are brought, it's important to establish the religious liberty protections that religious organizations need in order to be able to continue serving God, serving the church, and serving the society according to their convictions. Yeah. I'm going to ask you what may be a, a slightly unfair question, but in, in light of the lawsuits that invariably are now going to come forward, how important or not important is it for a church to clarify exactly where it stands or exactly what it teaches in terms of sexual orientation and gender identity, particularly in light of Bostock? Um, it is important, but I don't think you have to be graphic about it. And that's one of the enormous advantages that we have as Catholics, that we have um, great resources available to us. And so... One of the ways in which religious organizations get tripped up is they think they have to restate everything in their own words. And they have to dedicate pages in their own um, statement of faith or in their own handbooks to explaining all the different things that um, you can and can't do and all the way to interpret all these different rules. And that's a really hard thing for, for non-denominational evangelical schools and organizations because they don't have those resources to rely on nearly the same way. And so that's one thing that I guide um, Catholic schools and organizations through is that look you you can you can cite the catechism and that's a big shortcut and you don't have to use all these really graphic words in your in your handbook you can say look we're Catholic and we we believe what the Catholic Church teaches if if you're confused about that here's where you go to find out what that means right. and so that we can rely on on the magisterium and the teaching authority of the church and that um, that saves a lot of legwork. Um, for individual organizations in order so they don't have to define everything in the same sort of uh, granular detail as an independent organization might. Let me push you on that for a second, because I, I would agree with you that the Catholic Church's teaching on um, homosexual orientation, homosexual acts is very clear. Mm -hmm. But 
it hasn't been very clear on the issue of gender identity. In fact, some of mm-hmm. us have been kind of pushing to say, hey, can we get some clarifying? Could this lack of clarity hurt a Catholic institution's religious liberty defense um, in this area? Well, um, I would say the, the Catholic Church as a whole, that it's the fact that you can find people who are in good standing in the Catholic Church we have different perspectives on this, uh, on which you can on pretty much any issue. Um, <laughs> that is not an impediment in that the law has been really good in saying it's the individual that comes before the court and their own religious court is, um, conviction that is important. So okay. this has happened before, uh, going back decades, with a case about a uh, Jehovah's Witness person that the state of Indiana tried to put on a witness against the plaintiff in saying, you know, we have another... Uh, witness that said, uh, you know, actually, this person is interpreting his own faith wrong, and that someone who's Jehovah's Witness um, can work in uh, a factory that creates military weapons. And the court says, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're not going to have a word experts in terms of whether this person understands his own faith correctly. We're going to take the plaintiff at face value with his sincere religious convictions. And so they, that gets you past the expert team. But of course, it's a lot more helpful when um, judges and juries can understand where you're coming from. Right. And so, you know, I've had this when I was at the Beckett Fund representing Amish people. It's really hard when you have to go before the court and say, Your Honor, um, yes, my uh, client will use a flashlight to go to the bathroom overnight, but they're not going to do this. And, Your Honor, my client's sincere. And the judge <sighs> is looking at you and saying, uh, I just don't feel like, it, there's not much explanation. Right. Um, it, it's much better when you can say, look, the Catholic Church has had teachings on sexual morality and the human person for 2,000 years. And, you know, if you, if you want a survey, I'm happy to provide you a survey with that. And, um, and so the, the, the continuity and the weight of the teaching authority of the church is helpful. Um, you know, judges, you know, even Justice Gorsuch, you know, justices are people. And at the end of the day, judges... Um, even when they're interpreting laws, want to go home at the end of the day feeling like they've done the thing. Because that's part of the persuasive job as a lawyer is saying that you know, to create a winsome uh, picture of your own client and of what your client wants. And telling a story that um, explains the church's teaching not as um, a, simply a set of rules, but as the church's understanding of God's, un, of God's design for human people and what they're for, and what makes them happy. And yes, people disagree on those, but the Catholic Church has its rules because it's about human flourishing. And telling that story is an important part of the Church's um, job in this in our culture as a whole, and, uh, it's, uh, and in individual lawsuits. And I know that's something that's close to your heart as well. Yeah. Amen. Eric, what final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners today? There are a lot of uncertainty in our world. We're dealing with the coronavirus, upcoming political elections, crazy Supreme Court decisions. Um, <laughs> and there is a lot of uncertainty. And, uh, you know, I hope this conversation hasn't been too destabilizing for the listeners. But we don't put our so. trust in I hope not. But we do put our trust in God, um, you know, who, who uh, you know, cares for the sparrow. He made heaven and earth. He cares about the big things and the small things. So, um, you know, I think we need to um, take solace in our faith, we need to hold fast to our convictions, to what we know is true. Um, let us not become um, too fearful, um, because 
we know we know the things that we are to be about. And so uh, we do need to take time to, to pay attention to details and to get your religious liberty protections in place and make sure that you're ready. Uh, but uh, once we've done that, we need to move forward and, and do what we're called to do. Excellent. Very well stated. How can people get in touch with you if they'd like to? Uh, my uh, my law firm, again, is Lewis Roca Rothgerber Christie. Um, fortunately, I have an unusual last name, and so it's easy to find me. So if you do lawyer, Niffin, um, Colorado, I guarantee I'll be the first one. <laughs> Very well said. Eric Niffin, thank you for your time today. Thank you for a fantastic podcast. Great to talk to you, Jim. For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on bioethics on air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you have suggestions for future topics, please contact me, your host, Joe Zala, at J-Z-A-L-O-T, at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcasts, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service. You can contact us by phone at 215-877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening today. And may God's peace be with you.